Welcome again to the Unified Trust Under the Hood podcast, where we attempt to unpack, uncover, and illuminate financial planning and investment-related topics. My name is Kevin Avent, Managing Director of our Wealth Management Group here, and I'm joined by one of our senior fiduciary investment advisors at Unified Trust, Mr. Billy Lanter. Billy, how are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I'm good. How long have you been Unified Trust now? Uh, a little over 11 years now. 11 years. How long have you been in the industry? Uh, almost 15 now. 15 years. Yeah, my wife says this job has aged me. I looked a lot younger when I got in. I you still look don't young, but, look yeah. 30 yet. Well, there will be a day I will welcome that comment. What's your secret? How are you doing that? Clean living doing? is key. Stress-free. That's why I'm in financial services. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Fair to say we've experienced a little volatility in the markets lately? Fourth quarter was uh, rough, uh, to say the least, no doubt. Worst December in the history of the stock market. Worst December, followed up by one of the best Januaries so far. Yeah, I think in the last, what, 30 years or something like that was the best January. So uh, we've got some conflicting signals going on right now all of a sudden that seem to get a lot of press this time of year. One's called the January effect. Are you familiar with that? I am. Uh, January effect basically implies that whatever the market does in January, the market will follow suit for the, in the 11 months of the year that follow that. So if January's up, market will close up for the year. If January's down, it's going to be a down year the rest of the year. That is correct, sir. And apparently over the last 10 years, it's been 50-50 at best. And it's not been great even over the long term. Correct. Everyone's looking for signs and prognostications and sort of like the groundhog. Just none of them really seem to pan out over time that well. Looking at this January, you know, we should actually, if it holds... Uh, You've got almost an entire year's worth of returns baked into one month right now, so we'll see what the rest of the year holds. Last year it was wrong. You know, I think January last year was pretty good, and then we ended up negative. And that actually is a segue into another indicator that gets a lot of press this time of year, which is the Super Bowl indicator. Are you familiar with this? Uh, I am. It basically says that if the Patriots win, the world will be terrible. Um, and if the Patriots lose, the world's better. It's specifically the NFC versus the AFC. So the AFC, uh, when the AFC team wins, actually that's a bad sign for the market. And the NFC team wins, that typically is a good sign. This one is actually worse than the January effect in terms of its predictive power. So last year, for instance, the NFC team won. Philadelphia Eagles came back and, and beat the Patriots and finally won a Super Bowl. Stunted the dynasty, I guess, but you know, didn't stun it for very long, right? You know, Here we are, in the, I think in the last like, 15, 20 years with the uh, Super Bowl indicator. It's been wrong way more than it's been right. And in fact, it's been wrong three years in a row now. Most of them, have you heard of the uh, coin toss uh, predictor? I mean, there are about 50-50 chance on, on all of these. People just look for some attribution to have an idea of what markets are going to do. Do you uh, take any of the prop bets in the Super Bowl? Negative. No. Yeah, clean living, sir. Did you happen to see where, <laughs> yeah, of course, and did you happen to see where Gladys Knight, you know, they always do the over-under on the national anthem, and I think the over-under was set at like a minute and 52 seconds. And Gladys Knight sang it less than a minute and 52 seconds. And then she paused, and then she sang Brave again. She finished at a minute and like 48, and then there was a pause, and then sang the Brave again, which meant the song wasn't over, and one of the sports books actually paid out both sides of the bet. They paid out the under and the over, and it cost them like $700,000 or something like that. It's an expensive word. It's an expensive word. So do you think she did that? That was a conspiracy theory. You think she did that on purpose? Yeah. Okay. So our topic today, 
happens to be another force in finance. It doesn't seem to get as much press, and that is investor behavior, or in our business, we call it behavioral finance. The father of behavioral finance is a professor named Richard Thaler, and he actually won a Nobel Prize for the work he's done in this area. And I guess really that means he probably values it now much more than he ever did before winning it, according to his theory. So what Thaler's work highlighted was we display behaviors that can actually hinder and in some cases destroy our ability to be successful investors. So some of those behaviors, among others, we will touch on today include overconfidence, hindsight bias, short-term bias, inertia, regret avoidance, loss aversion, among others. So what we're going to do is try to attempt to explain these behaviors and more importantly offer suggestions as to how to manage them so you can set yourself up for success as an investor. So Billy, let's dive into a topic and we're going to start with overconfidence. Can you tell us what overconfidence is and why that matters for investors? Sure. So overconfidence is basically the notion that people tend to rate themselves above average. Uh, I'm above average investors and breeds more confidence in what they're doing. By mathematics, the average is in the middle, so you can't have a room of 100 people and everyone thinks they're above average. And that tends to be the case a lot of times with folks, people rating their own investment skills better than the average is, so they plow their own way and choose to do it on their own. And unfortunately, the math just is not in favor uh, of that type of strategy. We've seen a lot of folks here uh, through the years, there's a couple of folks I know in particular that both are participants in a 401k plan, both have had the exact same dollars going into their plan every year. And the only difference between the two of them, really, they've started the same date, they've saved the same amount of money every year. The only difference is the investment advice they took. Investor A took a unified trust managed solution, but essentially was a diversified portfolio, balancing some risk and with his time horizon. The other investor was a do-it-yourself, you know, looking at a list of 3,000, 5,000 stocks and trades constantly in there. Cash flows, money going in were the same. Just what they did was the difference. If you look at their returns over time, it's pretty shocking. Investor A, who took a balanced, diversified uh, portfolio and just left it be. He doesn't go in and monkey around with it, doesn't change it a whole lot. He uh, has amassed about 40% more wealth than Investor B, even though they've saved the same amount of money. The only difference is behavior over time. Wow. And, And why the guy invest on his own is because he believes he's an above average investor. He's better at picking stocks than the average person is. So that's something called, I think Thaler says that's something called self-attribution bias. Correct. Where basically you you overweight your ability to make good decisions. Yeah, and part of this gets into, we won't get in deep into this today, but it's, it's mental accounting for him. He only sees the winners and not the losers instead of the totality of what his return is over time. Skill and luck. So which one is it? A little bit of both? A little bit of both. Would you rather be lucky than skilled any day? I'll take the skill over yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a fair amount of luck. I guess the, the net of it is uh, a lot of people actually think that there's a lot of thought, skill, and energy that goes into some of these outcomes when, in fact, it may have just been good luck. Sure. I, I said with a lot of things in life, half of life is about timing and Uh, Depending on when you get started as an investor, that makes a big difference. But if you look at over long periods of time, averages are hold true because they're averages over long periods of time. So there is a fair amount of luck, if you want to call it that, involved. But skill is incredibly important. And sometimes, in this case, it was the 
absence of doing himself any harm. Investor A did great because he didn't change anything. Um, and just a good advice at the outset. So what you're saying is that Investor A was simple and Investor B was a little bit more complex. Anything but. Yeah, he was very concentrated in certain sectors, only held a handful of stocks in his account, uh, very concentrated risk, and didn't fully understand the risk he was taking or the opportunity thereof. Somebody once told me that investing should be simple and, dare I say, boring. Well, if you look at some of the most successful investors over time, that would tend to be true. Vanguard's made a an industry out of simple, boring investing, if you will. So the more complex and maybe the, the more jazzy investing becomes to folks, maybe it could lead to less success. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, and a lot of this gets to just, again, the emotional aspect of investing. What drives most investors are two basic emotions, fear and greed. And if you've been an investor for any period of time, you have felt both of those and they, most people tend to, to lean towards one versus the other. You're a little bit more of a fearful investor, or a little bit more of a greedy investor, and that will lead you into your own biases or items we'll talk about today. But how you respond to that emotionally does drive your behavior, and often not always in good ways. I think that fearful one, certainly we're going to touch on in a little bit with the loss aversion, sure. no question about it. So another one we wanted to, to touch on as well was something called hindsight bias. And this is kind of this phenomenon of, well, I knew it all along, you know, where you perceive events that, that already happened, you perceive them to be much more likely to happen after the fact. Uh, so you sort of, well, you know, everybody could have seen that coming in hindsight. So can you talk about that a little bit and, and maybe have some examples and how, how this one can hurt investors? Yeah, so one of the biggest examples, certainly 2008, 2009, the number of people that I've met post-2008 and that have told me, well, I, I saw it coming, we knew things were coming, and well, what'd you do about it? Well, I didn't do anything about it. Everybody, everybody knew it was coming, everybody saw it was coming, and at the time, very few people saw it coming. If you've seen the documentary or, or movie, I should say, or read the book about the... Um, Big Short? Big Short, thank yeah. you, the name is giving but if you've read the Big Short or seen the movie... That's the whole premise is it highlights how very few people saw what was coming. There were a handful of people that did see it coming and took the bets, if you will, or made the investments to pay off uh, right. from the mortgage crisis. But very few people saw what was coming. Was it Michael knew, Berry? Is that Michael Berry. Yeah. Uh, that knew Lehman Brothers was going to collapse. That knew Bank of America. That knew these names would no longer be household names. Wachovia. And so... I don't think anyone would have predicted 1-1-2008 that those events would have unfolded, but many of them did. And so the notion that you can somehow see things coming before they happen just doesn't really work that well. There are some folks that you know, I have met that, that did take action. They just felt something was off, they didn't like it, and so they got out of the market at a, a pretty good time. Summer of 2008 would have been a very good time to sell. And I've met some folks that did that. The problem is that you know, some of these behaviors all relate together it leads to our last issue we just talked about, which is overconfidence. Well, I, I saw it coming. I knew what to do. I got out. And they were right. To their credit, they were right, and they did get out of the market. But now you're overconfident in your ability to see what else is coming. And unfortunately, so many of those folks were still sitting on cash in 2010, 2011, 2012. They didn't see the recovery coming as well. It's just these things are so hard to predict. It is so hard to be right twice and that's the that's the problem when you get into stuff like overconfidence and hindsight bias you may be right on when to get out but are you going to be right on when to get in and maybe that's the harder thing because 
you find yourself paralyzed. You find yourself, oh man, I, I made such a good decision four months ago or six months ago or two weeks ago. I don't know. It can't possibly be right now. You know, the, I got to be fear of messing up your rightness. Yeah, yeah, which is which is regrettable it's yeah. as, as well that we're going to touch on. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it's an incredibly hard thing. Hindsight bias is tough, and again, some of these do tie in together. We've talked about at least overconfidence if you're right, and then if you're wrong, again, just the feelings of regret and avoidance. So, so short-term bias is another one, speaking of biases. Short-term bias is another one that I think that we see a fair amount. And this is just simply where you're emphasizing or you're looking at short-term results or you know, sort of what, what the hot hand is, so to speak, over maybe zooming out, looking at things from a 30,000-foot level. So uh, talk a little bit about short-term bias, Billy. There's so many things here. The world we live in today of 24-hour media cycles, everything is over-dramatized, if you will. And so it's very easy to get caught up in these short-term risks, if you want to call them that, but quick news stories. Several examples just of late. Think about the, the Brexit debacle that that has been for a number of years. When Brexit was first announced and voted on, essentially, if you remember, markets fell drastically over oh, a period of about three time. days yep. and then immediately recovered right afterwards. Yep. So very short-term risk. People went in a panic for about a three-day stretch, and then it was smooth sailing again, like nothing ever happened. But if you got caught up in the, the motion of those three days, it could have led to some bad behaviors. Another really good example the uh, most recent presidential election in 2016. A lot of uncertainty moving into that election. In July, August of that year, polls were narrowing a bit, if you will, and received multiple emails, phone calls uh, from clients, and some of which wanted to, to sell out. They felt there's too much risk, too much uncertainty in the markets. They don't know what's going to happen in November, and that's so much what drives this. Fear leads to uncertainty. And uncertainty leads us to just do some, some crazy stuff sometimes. And so people wanted to hit the cash button leading up to the elections. And then no matter who won, wait and see what things look like in January, February, March before we dip our toes back in. And if you did that, which fortunately we were able to, to advise our clients otherwise and protect them from from election day to their peak were up over 40% uh, at one point. So Massive rally. Massive rally. So again, just the idea that you can predict these things as we talked about hindsight bias or overweighting these short-term risks. So I think there's a, a fund that kind of illustrates this. Yeah, Fidelity Magellan, very popular fund in the 90s. Peter Lynch, if you remember him, he, he was a rock star. Uh, he'd come out on stage at conferences. It was like a KISS concert, you know, fog machines and lights flare. But he, he was a very successful fund manager. And uh, his fund averaged from 1977 through 1990, averaged 29% a year over a 13-year stretch. Which is ridiculous. It, it shattered the S&P, did very, very well, obviously. And investors knew about this. This wasn't a secret. Fidelity is clearly promoting the performance of their fund, and, and it was a very, very popular fund. The problem is when you look at the average investor experience, the investment averaged a 29% return for 13 years, which is incredible. The problem is the average investor did not get that experience. Most people bought in when it was really high, and the minute it started to pull back, they got out, thinking the rally was over. Fidelity Investments themselves actually conducted a study on the fund and found that the average investor actually lost money, lost money on an investment that made 29% a year for 13 years on average. It's, it's unbelievable. 
performance. That's an unbelievable statistic. Yeah, really. They overweighted the short-term risk of when when performance was down, they got out. And then when it was up, they overweighted the short-term risk that it was up and bought in high. The hot hand. The hot hand. F- five stocks to buy now. You see how many of those articles do you see on the Internet? You know, that's exactly what that is. It's hard. I, I mean, as you said, you've got all these things things that are so short-term focused and social media is coming at you in the news cycle and everything is well replace the the news that you just heard with another piece of news so you can get out of the news cycle and, and change the narrative and it's constantly like that it's just this machine that's constantly working that keeps you in this short-term mindset so you actually have to fight to think long term and really get out of that because it's just, it's just it's a rat race. It's a wheel. It's a really negative feedback loop. Think about it, uh, successful investors like Warren Buffett who have removed themselves from that just geographically. You know, he's based in the middle of the country, basically away from all the noise, away from the hustle, bustle, Wall Street. It's not impeded his success at all. There's something to just getting away from the news cycle, I think, that actually is good for you as an investor. I'd say it's improved his success dramatically, yeah. So another one that I think we want to touch on today is inertia. And this is probably the one of the most powerful ones of all these. And, you know, inertia is just simply, you know, you just fail to take action. Even when you know you should, even when you may have agreed to take action, but somehow you just fail to do it. And, gosh, I think about right now that the biggest inertia fighting I'm doing in my life we moved this past summer, and, you know, when you move, you get things in. And you may not always have things exactly placed where you want them long term, but you just get it in. And I feel like we're still living in a VRBO or something. I mean, like, we, we've still got, we've got so much still to unpack in the garage. And I know it, and I look at it. And I somehow just fail to act. I mean, it just, uh, uh, you know, this just. This is like my children. Wherever they put something down, that's its new home. Yes, yes, exactly. So it's, but it's tough. But in investing, it can hurt a lot, you know. Uh, and, and we see this particularly on our retirement plans. We actually try to help investors, try to help participants fight inertia by sort of bringing the answer to the enrollment meeting to them because what our research overwhelmingly tells us is if somebody comes to the enrollment meeting without the answer presented to them and are left to their own devices and select the wrong thing based on whatever, you know, it could have been something they heard on the way to work that day. It could have been something their coworker told them. It could have been their uncle who had great bond fund for years. And so he said, buy that yeah exactly you know and they they select it it's not good for them but inertia keeps them in it for months years decades and you wake up 20 years and 30 years from now and you're like oh no i should have done something a lot different 10 15 20 30 years ago and it means thousands tens hundreds maybe more of difference for a, a financial outcome for somebody. So inertia is, it's powerful and it's hard to overcome, but it's a big deal. Yeah, there's a reason 401k plans are moving more and more to things like auto enrollment, uh, help participants from themselves, basically. If I've got to fill out a form and sign it and turn it in, I'm much less likely to do that. But if I've got to fill out a form and turn it in to not participate in a 401k plan, I'm probably not going to fill that form out. The 
result can be drastically altered by just changing some default provisions. And there's 401k plans, but even as individual investors, just setting up things like automatic investing every month. You know, if you think of, well, I'm going to wait till it's a good time to put money in. For all the reasons we've talked about, you're probably not going to invest that well over periods of time. Right. Doing automated things puts inertia in your favor by setting up good behaviors and just letting them repeat themselves over time. And that's a segue into into the next one, which is kind of a close cousin to inertia, which is this regret avoidance that people, you know, we desire to avoid regret, you know. Um regret avoidance shows up a lot in inertia because that's that's kind of at the basis as to why people probably don't actually do something they may they they think well if i do something i know i'm supposed to do something if i do something but i may regret it i may have sort of these second thoughts so i'm just i'm just not going to do anything rational minds can act irrationally <laughs> yeah absolutely um, yeah and so this feeling of regret you know you get these illogical feelings uh from a fear of a poor outcome and it can just lead to illogical poor action or in some cases inaction you mentioned earlier just being frozen um there was an individual i met several years ago and had been through a lot of stuff in his life personally with, with some health issues and, and family members and just had a lot of emotion really bearing down on him, but was not an investor content to ride things out. You know, very, very short-term focused on risk. And in 2008 and nine, when markets did struggle so much, he saw the recovery coming out of 09 as, as a short-lived recovery in the spring of 09. And we know now almost a decade later, that short-lived recovery is now the longest running bull market ever. Mm-hmm. And he hit the cash button in May of 09, thinking that the rally was just a couple months and then going lower. And he's been sitting on cash since May of 2009. Oh, goodness. Fearful to buy back in, that the rally's getting ready to fizzle out. And a decade later, it has not fizzled out yet. And so, again, just the regret and the frozenness that he has of one poor action has led to almost a decade worth of poor decision-making. For one decision, you know. Yeah. Uh, boy, that's the opposite of overconfidence, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's that's brutal. Well, I can tell you, you know, I've seen this a lot, uh, certainly in my career. And, you know, this is another one. All these really apply to not just investing behavior, but just stuff that you go through in daily life. I mean, honestly, I look at this entire list that we've covered, and it's basically how I feel in one afternoon when I go to Costco and then when I come back. I think I have every single emotion here (laughs) because I'm always overconfident that I'm not going to go to Costco and spend a ridiculous amount of money. But somehow I manage to spend a ridiculous amount of money when I'm in Costco. And so when I leave, I just have this terrible feeling of regret. It's like, ah, I've, I thought I was going to do better this time, but I didn't do better. I, I would I would posit to you that hindsight bias suggests that I knew you were going to spend more than you should have before you walked in that store. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it only happens every time. That's what I always tell my wife. Yeah, that's the one place that it has me. Another one that that I wanted to touch on is loss aversion. So this is a big one. Loss aversion is just simply that investors tend to overweight losses more than they weight gains. The average investor is like two to one. But retirees who can't necessarily afford to lose as much 
I think it's actually close to 10 to 1. And the problem is we know stocks do lose money sometimes. Uh, stocks are not always up. And so as a retiree, if you have this hyper-loss aversion, or just as a regular investor, a hyper-loss aversion, what do you do? You know stocks are going to, to move around. I mentioned this to you before, but it's almost like getting on an airplane sometimes. Uh, you know before you get on a flight, there's risk of turbulence, right? There could be some turbulence and a little bit of discomfort, if you want to call it, on the plane. And everyone has an inkling of what they're willing to accept when you get on the plane from what their normal experience has been through flying. But everyone's probably also had that one flight that had way more turbulence than what they expected it to have. And when that happens, you can look around the plane and just see palpable tension. There's a feeling of discomfort. Everyone has an idea of what they're willing to do, willing to go through. But when things respond greater than what you expected, whether it's turbulence or market volatility or losses, we're hypersensitive to that. And so we react very emotionally and sometimes very irrationally that can lead to a lot of these behaviors that we've talked about today. Yeah, that one is, is hard to manage sometimes. But I think one that you really have to get control of because uh, it can cause you to sort of frame the way you look at the markets and the way you have returns. I mean, from a total return perspective, it, it can cause you to think about trying to invest for income as opposed to like a total return, you know, and that's something that when I see investors constantly say, well, what, what's the yield of the portfolio? Tell me what it's going to pay me. Well, yes, but that's, that's one portion of it. It's a total return approach. You got to look at the growth of the account. You got to look at the growth of the assets in addition to what kind of income or, or dividend yield you're getting there. Because in some cases you can actually basically be paying yourself because you're so fearful of losing money and you're buying yield. You're buying, you're saying, I want that yield and everything else is just going to stay steady, right? Well, maybe not, actually. If you buy yield, a lot of times in some of these investments, they're paying these high dividend yields or high income yields for a reason. And a lot of times the price that you uh, have bought that at that investment actually declines. And so in, in an essence, you're paying yourself. So loss aversion is something that you need to really kind of get a handle on and understand. you got to really look at things in a total return perspective. So we've uncovered, uh, attempted to explain several of these behaviors. Let's talk a little bit about maybe offering some suggestions as to how to manage them. I think the biggest thing with these really is just knowing yourself, self-awareness. But there's not a cure for this. I mean, you're not going to find a cure for, for these kind of behaviors that we, that we all display. But there are a few things that you can do. Audit trails is something that you might benefit from. So basically having sort of a clear understanding of why you made the decision when you made it. And, and it just kind of refreshes your memory that might prevent you from making a, another bad decision or, or, or maybe uh, manifesting one of these behaviors. Checklists, another thing, you know, just going through the checklist of behaviors, almost like an airline pilot might do that, going through a checklist protocol to make sure that you're staying on point and on task. And then having sort of a devil's advocate in your life why we shouldn't do something or what could go wrong in a particular decision that you're considering to make. They can always sort of give you the other side. Those are some ways that you may be able to mitigate some of these uh, behavioral biases. But I think probably the biggest thing that we focus on for folks is really just knowing the goals that you're trying to achieve and planning for those goals. Yeah, I think there's uh, two sort of key things to recognize. One is 
you know, you, you hear these lists of biases and people naturally tend to think, well, that's other people, but not me. And the reality is we all deal with these emotions. That's what makes us human in a lot of ways. So just recognize that everyone's subject to these. And two is to recognize that your goals matter way more than these short-term biases do um, and impact. So it becomes a, a different measuring stick for success. And when you ask people uh, what their financial goals are, I don't think I've ever heard someone say to beat the S&P 500 every year. Right. Uh, everyone says, I want to retire someday, uh, live a life that I'm comfortable with and used to, and not outlive my money, and not be a burden on my children, and if possible, leave my children some money. I hear some variation of that all the time. But we don't invest like that. We focus on all this stuff, all the short-term noise and everything else going on, and what's the hot stock now, what should I do, and way too short-term focus. Focus on the long-term goals. Instead of thinking about how you feel in a various point in time, we should be managing investments across time where goals will change from time and markets are going to move over time. And that's why, you know, working with a firm like Unified Trust, a fiduciary firm, but implementing that is very difficult. But you do need someone on the other side of that desk from you, I think, to help offer some sound advice and protect you from some of these biases and make good decisions, keeping you focused on the outcomes. So I've been doing this uh, since nine, well, twenty years, uh, nineteen ninety nine. Heck of a time to get in the in the in this industry, by the way. Right before a really nasty bear market, and then followed up by a pretty nasty uh, five or six years later. But I would say that in my twenty years in doing this business, this is the most important thing because so many clients have interacted with have needed help, and maybe we're displaying some of these behaviors and turned it over basically sort of took the responsibility off of themselves, hired an expert, put it on somebody else, and now are extremely much better off. I can think of one particular situation in 2004. So that was 16 years ago, okay? Very difficult financial situation for a client. 16 years later, this particular client is in great shape to retire, is in his mid-50s, and has given away hundreds of thousands of dollars in the meantime. Very charitable. And it's really all because of the planning piece. That's not something that, that he had in his life before that. It's a tremendous success story for this person. And he will tell you, he's like, I, I can't believe this. I can't believe I'm where I'm at from where I came from. All it was was doing some planning to mitigate some of these other behaviors that maybe were in, in the fold before. And it's just made a world of difference for him. Yeah, don't be your own worst enemy is, is absolutely critical here. Find help, get help, and take advice. And when, when emotions come, they will come. When volatility comes, it will come. Focus on the goals, focus on outcomes and those results over time, and, and you can protect yourself from a lot of these challenges. All right, thank you, Billy, for all the insights that you offered to us today. And, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in once again, and we will see you next time.